Well, good to see everybody. Welcome to Theological Equipping. This is our last class uh, on the topic of sanctification. We've been talking about salvation for a, uh, a while now, and uh, this class is going to wrap it up with kind of the last step of your salvation, which is your resurrection. So we'll be talking about that next week. We are going to have an all-class free-for-all crazy Q&A. And by free-for-all and crazy, I mean please email in your questions early so we have good answers to those. Y'all can send it to any staff member if you have a question, or you can send it to the info at theparkwaychurch.com. But Jeff and I will be up here with a couple of stools, Dr. Phil style, but instead of talking about our feelings, we'll be talking about the Bible. And so uh, that will be next week, so uh, we're excited about that. And then for the rest of the semester, we're going to be studying the doctrine of ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, the study of the church. We're going to talk about what is the church, what should the church be be doing, things such as baptism, communion, membership, church discipline. Uh, church government, that's, uh, that's a pretty tantalizing, spicy, exciting topic. Church government, we'll be talking about that, uh, but that will be the, uh, the rest of the semester. Today, though, we're going to be talking about general resurrection, okay? General resurrection. So here, here's what I mean by general resurrection. When we talk about the resurrection, we have a tendency just to focus on Christ's resurrection, and rightfully so. Christ's resurrection is kind of a big deal. I don't know if you're a Christian or not, but for us, that is like the Super Bowl Sunday of Christianity, okay? And so that's a big deal. But we have a tendency to sometimes divorce it from our resurrection, and we have a tendency to feel like the eternal state Uh, won't be bodily or will just be spiritual or something like that. Now, let me tell you where that comes from. There's a tendency for us to think that when we die, we just become disembodied forever, okay? Now, Jeff talked about last week that you do become disembodied for a time while you await the resurrection, but it's not as though you stay that way. But we have a tendency to think that, that we either become like these floaty light orbs or these angels that play harps and go up into heaven, and heaven is just a place where a golfer never hits a slice and a fisherman never misses a catch, and it's basically all the things that you wanted to do on earth magnified or something like that, and uh, that is not the biblical presentation of, uh, of resurrection. That idea comes more from Greek. Greek philosophy, okay? So let's start with some Greek philosophy before we get into the Bible. Now, let me, let, let's say that we have a table with four legs. Everybody with me? Everybody's seen a table with four legs? If you've not seen a table with four legs, go ahead and raise your hand so we can shame you. No? Okay. That's a table. Let's say I take off one of the legs and it is now a table with three legs. Is that still a table? Yes or no? Yeah. What if I take off two legs and it only has two legs, but I lean it against a wall? Is that still a table? Okay. What if I take off three legs and it only has one? Is it a table now? Uh, now we're a little not quite so sure. What if I take off all the legs and I just put a piece of wood on the ground? Is that a table? Why, why not? Can I sit down and use it as a table? Why are you so confident that four legs is a table, but one legs or no legs is a table? Well, According to Plato, the, the great Greek philosopher, the reason being is because in the heavens, in the spiritual world, there is the perfect form of tableness, okay? The perfect table, and the way that we know that individual tables down here on earth line up with that is whether they, or not they line up with the form of the table. So the reason I say that is to say because of Plato, there's this tendency for us to be bifurcated in our thinking. We think of spiritual things as way up there and the perfect forms, and then down here we think of physical things as kind of of bad and gross and not that great. And that thinking sometimes can infiltrate Christianity, and so we have a tendency to think that way. We have a tendency to think that physical things are bad or that God created things bad or our bodies are bad or something like that, and that is not a biblical idea, 
Okay? I remember watching uh, Tom and Jerry as a kid, watching this cartoon, and sometimes something would happen where one of them would get killed, and they would become like this little angel that would play a heart and float, float up into heaven or something like that. That is not the biblical picture of what happens to you when you die. The biblical picture is that you will be bodily resurrected. Okay? The Bible teaches that there will be a, quote, new heavens and a new earth, and the Bible teaches that you will be bodily, physically resurrected. Okay? So to say this as clearly as I can, the eternal state will look a lot more like the Garden of Eden than it does Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel, okay? Than it does Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel. I've got a great little quote here by uh, N.T. Wright, who's a uh, New Testament theologian who's really good on some things, but he's not so great on others, but he is the, uh, the SEAL Team 6 Jedi Master of Resurrection, and here's what he says, heaven is great, but it's not the end of the world. What we are interested in is life after life after death, okay? Isn't that a great quote? And so uh, our hope is that one day our souls will be reunited with our bodies and we will be raised from the dead physically and will live forever in resurrected bodies. So let me give you the definition. This comes from Grudem. This is a good definition. It only really talks about believers, but you would apply this to unbelievers as well, uh, other than the fact that they will be raised unto judgment. But it says this, Christ will return and raise from the dead the bodies of all believers for all time who have died and reunite them with their souls and change the bodies of all believers who remain alive, thereby giving all believers at the same time perfect resurrection bodies like his own, okay? So this entire lesson is going to just spend a ton of time in Scripture. We're going to look at Old Testament. We're going to look at intertestamental things that aren't even in Scripture, just so we know how Jews thought about this issue. And then we're going to look at the New Testament. But I have three and only three points that you have to remember. So we're going to give a lot of information. I'm going to give you a bunch of weird stories about death and stuff from the Apocrypha. It's going to be a lot of fun. But the three things I want you to remember is this when it comes to resurrection, okay? A few things. First, resurrection is an end times event, okay? Resurrection is an end times event. If you read the prophets in the Old Testament, they are very clear that it's at the very end of time that God will resurrect people. That's why people are freaking out when Jesus is resurrected. He's not just resuscitated, he's resurrected. The capital R resurrection, the big resurrection that we will all partake in, Jesus has already started, which is why everyone freaks out. Because if Jesus has been raised from the dead, that means that the future has broken into the present. It means that the end has begun in the person of Christ. Zach, do we live in the end times? Yes, but we've been in the end times for 2,000 years because the end times begins with things like the resurrection. So I want you to realize that resurrection is an end times event. There was already this idea from the Old Testament and Jewish thinking that at the end of time, people would be resurrected, okay? Next, resurrection is physical slash bodily. It is physical slash bodily. You don't just, you're not just some sort of spirit, some sort of floaty light orb that goes up into heaven and there's elevator music and you stay there forever, that kind of thing. But it is physical, it is bodily. Jesus gets up out of the grave and he eats fish and he walks around and he talks to people and he tells Thomas to stick his finger in his hand holes, okay? So it's very bodily, very physical, and ours will be bodily and physical as well. And then uh, number three here, resurrection is for everyone. Resurrection is for everyone, okay? Jesus is the first apple to blossom on the resurrection tree. That's why the Bible will say that he is the first fruits of the resurrection. First fruits mean there are more fruit coming, okay? There's more fruit coming. So I want you to see, as we go through the Old Testament, uh, intertestamental period, and the New Testament, I want you to see how many times these three things are affirmed, okay? So what are the three things you have to remember? Without looking at your sheet, someone tell me what they are. In times, good, what else? Bodily, physical, and? It's for everybody. Okay, those are the big things I want you to see biblically. Let's start in the Old Testament. Did you know that resurrection is an Old Testament idea? It's not just something we see on Easter Sunday. This is something that the prophets had already foretold. Let's look at these. 
Isaiah 26, 19, in contrast to judgment, says this. Look at this. Your dead, that's plural, by the way. Notice it's for everybody. Your dead shall live there. What's the next word? Bodies, bodily, physical. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Notice this is a prophecy in contrast to judgment. This, this verse contains all three. This is a future event, an end times event. It's bodily and physical, and it is for everyone. Daniel 12.2, in describing the end, again, an end times event, says this. And many, notice the plurality there, it's for everyone. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. One of the questions that was asked last week during Jeff's lesson is, is resurrection just for believers? No, resurrection is for believers and for non-believers. Everyone will be resurrected, whether unto life or unto judgment. But the eternal final state for everybody is a bodily existence, okay? Ezekiel 37, 1 through 12, I'm just going to read this quickly. The old uh, Valley of Dry Bones uh, passage says this. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out uh, in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and I prophesied there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as they commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Okay? Now this is a famous passage out of Ezekiel. By the way, Ezekiel is one of the weirdest books in the Old Testament to read. All prophecy is like this because it uses metaphorical and figurative imagery to talk about a literal point. And in this case, God is simply trying to say, listen, Israel. Though you are like this valley of dry bones, though you're, you're dead, I'm going to breathe new life into you, okay? So it is more of a reviving Israel language. But notice the wording and stuff that is used here does mirror the idea and the image of resurrection. So I think the stronger passages about resurrection in the Old Testament are Isaiah 26 and Daniel 12, but there is something that is hinted at here in, uh, in Ezekiel 37. As God's talking about reviving Israel, he uses the imagery of bodily resurrection, reviving them from the ground, giving them muscles and flesh back, breathing new life into them, okay? Hosea 13:14. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. We talked about Sheol last time. Sheol doesn't just mean the grave. It's where you go when you die in Jewish thinking. It's kind of this shadowy nether region that, uh, that you go when you die, and uh, it says, I will ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from their eyes. By the way, uh, this passage probably sounds like a common New Testament passage you've heard, which is, you know, where, O death, is your sting? Where, O death, is your victory? That's where it comes from here in Hosea. But notice there is this promise to ransom people from death, to pull them out of the grave, to pull them back from Sheol. And then lastly here, Hebrews 19. Now, 
listen, I understand that Hebrews is not in the Old Testament, okay? I'm very aware of that. I've included Hebrews here because it's going to say something about the Old Testament, okay? Look what it says here, Hebrews 11:19. In talking about the Old Testament, though it is a New Testament book, says this, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. You guys know the story of the binding of Isaac, right? You have Abraham and Isaac, and he's going to kill Isaac, and God gives Isaac back and doesn't make him kill him. What's interesting is the author of Hebrews says this. Now, listen to this. This is fascinating. The author of Hebrews is trying to answer this question. How can Abraham kill his son when God said that his son was going to be the one through whom he would have all these descendants, that a Messiah would come? And the answer is because Abraham believed in resurrection. That's what Hebrews is saying, that as a Jew, Abraham knew, I guess God's just going to raise him and, ha- will, and he'll have more kids because I don't know what else to do, but I know that God's made a promise through my son and he's told me to kill them. How do I hold those intention? With the belief in bodily resurrection. So, everybody good so far in the Old Testament? There's a lot of information. It's like drinking from a fire hydrant, okay? We see these three things. Resurrection's an end times event. It is bodily and physical, and it is for everyone. You will be resurrected whether you want to be or not, okay? Now, Let's talk about resurrection in the intertestamental period. What is the intertestamental period, okay? There are several hundred years in between the end of your Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. That is known as the intertestamental period. That's why it's called that, okay? I'm going to quote to you some information from Jewish sources, but I need to be clear. What I'm about to quote to you is not in the Bible, okay? It should not be in the Bible. It is not Scripture. I'm not saying it's Scripture. What we have in the Bible is Scripture. But the reason I'm giving you this information is because a pastor is to be a good historian, and what we have to do is we have to let you know what did Jews already believe about resurrection? So that way when we enter the time of the New Testament and they talk about resurrection, we know what they're talking about. Does that make sense? Okay. So let's say somebody from the future wanted to analyze American politics in 2019. They wouldn't just study that time period. They would have to study several years and several presidencies and things like that leading up to that to understand current American culture. Are you with me? So what we're doing is we're going to look at what Jews believed about resurrection in the intertestamental period in books that are not in the Bible to help equip us to understand how they thought about resurrection by the time we get to the New Testament. Everybody with me? Okay, so let me say it as simply as I can. Is 2 Maccabees Scripture? It is not. Amen. We are Protestants. Protestant, semper reformanda, okay? But can a book like 2 Maccabees help us understand what Jews believed during that time, though it's not Scripture? Yes, it's a helpful historical record, okay? So let me give you a few of these. First of all, the Dead Sea Scrolls, okay? Mid-1900s, there was a Bedouin shepherd boy out in Israel throwing rocks in these caves, and he threw a rock, and it hit a piece of pottery, is what it sounded like. And we found one of the most significant archaeological finds of the 20th century, and it is what is known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls are a collection of writings from this Jewish sect that lived outside of Jerusalem at a place called Qumran. And uh, these different scrolls let us know what Jews around that time believed, and we found a full-length copy of the scroll of Isaiah that was a thousand years earlier than the previous one we had. It was an amazing archaeological find. So I want to give you something from the Dead Sea Scrolls. They're typically named after what cave they were found in, and an H here marks them as a hymn. So Dead Sea Scrolls hymns, 237 through 38. Listen to this. That bodies, notice that the, uh, plural, the plural there, it's for everybody, and notice that it's bodily, that, bodily, that bodies gnawed by worms may be raised from the dust to the counsel of thy truth. Okay? We found this hymn, and in praise of God, and in praise of the brilliance of God's wisdom, there was this idea that uh, bodies that had already been gnawed by worms, that had already been corrupted, would be resurrected to the glory of God. Okay? 
Second Baruch. Anybody in here did a good devotional this morning out of Second Baruch? No? Okay. You probably shouldn't. It's not scripture, but it's helpful. But it's helpful. Second Baruch 30, 1 through 2. Now, before I read this, this comes from the late first century, okay? But the reason it's helpful is because it still lets us know what Jews believed as we move into the time of the New Testament, okay? So it doesn't always have to be written way before the time of the New Testament or something like that to be helpful. You can still see patterns of thought and such before that. So it says this, and it shall come to pass after these things when the time of the advent of the Messiah is fulfilled that he shall return in glory. Now look at this next part. Then all who have fallen asleep, i.e. died, in hope of him shall rise again. Here's another reference from Judaism outside of the Bible saying when the Messiah comes, he brings resurrection. If you look back at our definition, it says the same thing, that when Christ comes, he's going to resurrect us. This is a Jewish idea long before it is uh, something that is even mentioned in the New Testament, okay? Next, 2 Maccabees, okay? If you ever are just bored and you want to read some, uh, some intertestamental literature, I highly recommend 2 Maccabees. It is a super fun book about all these fights going on between Judas Maccabeus and his rebel brigand against the, uh, you know, evil Seleucids and things like this. And, uh, and so I want to tell you what's going on here in 2 Maccabees. So there was a guy, he's not a good guy. He's kind of the uh, Hitler of the intertestamental period, and his name is Antiochus IV. Okay? Epiphanes is the name he took upon himself. God manifest is what that means. So whenever somebody's claiming that they're God manifest, you watch out. Okay? You watch out. That's not the guy to follow. And, uh, and so what he does is uh, he is a pagan king. He ruled over this area. And what he would do is he would torture and persecute Jews. Okay? He sacrificed a pig on the altar in Jerusalem, etc., etc. He did all these terrible things. But in this story here in 2 Maccabees 7, what he does is he takes this family who has seven sons. So there's this mom, and she has seven boys. And he commands them to renounce their faith and to eat pork, which you cannot do at this time. They're still under the Mosaic law. So he commands, you have to eat pork, you have to renounce God, you have to walk in filthiness, you have to walk in uncleanness. And the boys, to their credit, say, we're not going to do that. We're going to be faithful to God. And uh, so Antiochus starts having them uh, persecuted and tortured. For example, they take the first son and they scalp him, they cut out his tongue, cut off his hands and feet, and then sear him in a huge cauldron. Okay? I'm not trying to say this for shock factor. I'm just trying to be a good historian, but that's what they do. When they get to the third son, here's what happens. Okay? Now look at this. This is 2 Maccabees 7, 10 through 14. After him, the third, meaning the third boy, the third son, was the victim of their sport. When it was demanded, he quickly put out his tongue and courageously stretched forth his hands and said nobly, I got these from heaven, and because of his laws, that's God's law, I disdain them, and from him I hope to get them back again. As a result, the king himself and those with him were astonished at the young man's spirit, for he regarded his sufferings as nothing. When he too had died, they maltreated and tortured the fourth in the same way. And when he was near death, he said, one cannot but choose to die at the hands of men and to cherish the hope that God gives of being raised again by him. But for you, there will be no resurrection to life. So let me tell you why this story is so cool, okay? This evil king is forcing you to renounce your faith, and you've just watched two brothers before you die in very violent ways, like being scalped and seared alive, okay? And it comes your time, and he says, why don't you renounce the faith? And this boy goes, why don't you go ahead and cut off my hands, because I'm going to get them back at the resurrection anyway. Go ahead and cut out my tongue. I'll get it back. I got them from God. I'll get them again from God. But for you, you'll be judged at the resurrection. That's awesome, okay? Somebody get the, the seven Jewish sons are my homeboy shirt printed or something and wear that, because these guys are hardcore, Okay? But notice the hope that there is resurrection. Notice the hope that it's bodily. It's not just kill this body and I'll be a spirit. It's I'm going to have this again. Do what you want to me now. Don't fear those who kill the body, will say Christ, but fear him who can cast both body and soul into hell. 
2 Maccabees 12.44, more talk of resurrection. There's a lot in 2 Maccabees. For if he were not expecting that those who had uh, fallen would rise again, it would have been superfluous and foolish to pray for the dead. Now, let me tell you what's going on there. In 2 Maccabees 12, there is this idea of praying for the dead. We do not hold to that in Protestantism, okay? This is one of the verses that Roman Catholics will actually point to in praying for the dead because they have the Apocrypha as part of Scripture. If you want to know why we don't have that as part of Scripture, listen to our lesson on what books belong in the Bible that is online uh, for our theological equipping. But that's not the point I'm trying to get to here. The whole point that 2 Maccabees 12 is saying is that there is a hope for those who have died that they would be raised again, okay? That those would be raised again. And then lastly, man, this one is gory. So I apologize for uh, if you have a weak stomach, but I don't apologize for giving you interesting history things regarding the resurrection. So here we go. Let me give you, uh, let me give you the context here. There's a Jewish man, a Jewish leader, and his name is Raziz. Okay, that's a good name. And if you women are pregnant, I highly recommend naming your son Raziz. There's a Jewish man named Raziz, and he's going to be killed by a pagan. But he doesn't want to die at the hands of a pagan. So what he does is as the pagans are coming, he falls on his sword, and he doesn't die right away, so he throws himself off of a wall, and he still is not dead, okay? He's like the Rasputin of Judaism or something. You just can't kill him. And here's what he says. This is 2 Maccabees 14, 45 through 46. Still alive and aflame with anger, he rose, and though his blood gushed forth and his wounds were severe, he ran through the crowd and standing upon a steep rock with his blood now completely drained from him, he tore out his entrails, took them in both hands and hurled them at the crowd, calling upon the Lord of life and spirit to give them back to him again. This was the manner of his death. You want to kill me? Take my guts. God's going to give them back. That's what this text is saying. Isn't that amazing? You didn't even know that intertestamental history could be so interesting. Okay. So, we see yet again, we see yet again that resurrection is an end times event. I'll get it back again. That it is bodily. It involves things like hands and guts. And that it's for everybody. It's for everybody, okay? Now, let's move into the New Testament, okay? Let's talk about resurrection in the New Testament. I want you to see this again. Now that you have this paradigm of these three things about resurrection, when you read these passages that you've read your whole life, all of a sudden they're going to pop for you. And I want you to see some of these different elements here, okay? So, John 11, 23 through 24, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again, talking about Lazarus. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now, see why that's interesting. Jesus is saying... Lazarus is going to be raised. And Martha says, I know that, silly Jesus. We're Jews. We're all going to be raised. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. I'm going to raise him now. That's what's unique. Okay? That's what's unique. But notice the Jewish expectation there. Of course he's going to be raised. We're Jews. We're all going to be raised. We already believe this. Okay? John 5, 28 through 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Notice, okay, an hour is coming. It's an end times event. All who are in the tombs, righteous and unrighteous, it's for everybody. And notice that it is bodily. There's a resurrection unto life and a resurrection unto judgment. Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and what? And body in hell. I had someone one time who was a skeptic, not a Christian, mockingly say to me, well, Zach, how can a soul burn in hell? And I said lovingly, it doesn't. It's attached to a body, all right? Uh, A body burns in hell with a soul in it because your body and soul are reunited at the resurrection. And so this text is uh, warning about that, okay? It's warning about that. Luke 14, 14, and you will be blessed 
because they cannot repay you. Okay, talking about giving to others and not taking something back and these kind of things. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Notice that this is an end times event, and notice that it's for everybody. Okay? Don't worry if somebody rips you off. Don't worry if you give money to somebody and they don't pay you back. Don't worry if you invite someone to a party and they don't invite you back to the party. You will have your reward. No good thing or righteous thing that you are doing is going unnoticed. I think we have a tendency to think, well, I've just been wronged, and that's just how it's going to be. No, there will be a recompense. There will be a judgment. It's coming. You just don't get to do it, and you don't get to do it now, okay? But it is coming. Notice, though, that there is the resurrection of everybody, a general resurrection, okay? 2 Timothy 2.18, talking about those who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. So Paul is warning against false teachers who are saying the resurrection has already happened. They can't be meaning the resurrection of Christ, That's not false teaching, that's true teaching. The resurrection of Christ had already happened by this time. What Paul is doing is he's refuting false teachers that say that the resurrection, the capital R resurrection, the end times resurrection that we'll all partake in has already happened and you just missed it. That's a false teaching is what Paul's saying, okay? So don't freak out. If somebody comes up to you and they're like, man, you missed it. The resurrection happened, you you just missed it. Sorry, you're just stuck. Don't freak out. Don't freak out. Not a big thing today. We have a, the good news is of having so many false teachers today that it's easy just to dismiss a whole group of people. That's what's nice. But in the first century, this would have been a more serious concern. Okay? Matthew twenty two thirty. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Okay? Notice that we will all be resurrected. Now, when this text says that we will be like the angels, that doesn't mean we will become angels. You will always and only ever be a human. Okay? The way that you're like an angel is that there will be no marriage in heaven. Okay? You will not be married in heaven. You will not get married in heaven because you'll be like the angels who are not married and don't get married. Okay? Marriage is a temporary thing. Marriage is for down here. To fulfill our role, to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth for God's glory, marriage is a necessity, but it will not be a necessity forever. Okay? Philippians 3.11. See, you didn't know all these were resurrection passages. You just thought at the end of the Gospels, that's where the resurrection was, but now it's all over the place, and you got a guy throwing his guts and stuff. It's the best. Philippians 3.11. Paul wants to strive to be faithful, look at this, in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Okay? Do you see that? In order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. That's Paul's hope. Paul's hope is, though I go through difficult things now, though I'm hurting now, though I'm persecuted now, one day there will be bodily resurrection, and that is what I'm striving for, okay? Acts 23.8, for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all, okay? Now, I put that in there. Notice that it is a common parlance in Jewish thinking to acknowledge resurrection. The Sadducees are kind of weird and kind of unique because they don't believe in that. But the Pharisees and most of the other Jews that are not Sadducean, that are not linked to the uh, temple complex, believe in the resurrection. Okay, notice it's a general resurrection. Acts 24, 15. Having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. That's what the Apostle Paul believes. The Apostle Paul will do this cool trick where he notices there's Pharisees and Sadducees and he wants to make the enemy of my enemy my friend. And so he's like, well, I'm just on trial because I believe in the resurrection. And everybody's like, I hate you, Paul. And everyone, though, that believes in the resurrection, like the Pharisees are like, Paul's not so bad. Paul's kind of a good guy, right? But his whole point is that he is saying that I'm on trial for believing in the resurrection, okay? Uh, Okay. Everybody good so far? We've done Old Testament, Intertestamental, and New Testament. Everybody good? 
Does everybody need one of those big breaths? Everybody need to stretch out, do some calisthenics? Are we okay? Okay, it's a lot of information. Let's keep going. Two more sections, and then I have some clarifications about resurrection. One here, I want you to see that Jesus was raised bodily. Okay, Jesus was raised bodily. Jesus is not, Jesus' resurrection is not that his body stays in the tomb and his spirit or something just goes up into heaven, that he is raised, okay? That he is raised bodily from the grave. Let me give you a few passages. Luke 24, 39, when he's talking to old doubting Thomas, see my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have, okay? Now that's powerful. You might have been tempted to think if you're a disciple, oh, it's Jesus' spirit. He's like, nope, touch me. See me? I'm right here. Everybody see how real I am. This is bodily. This is physical. There's blood coursing through my veins, okay? Luke 24, 44, I'm sorry, 42 through 43. They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them, okay? Again, his existence is bodily. He's eating fish, okay? You know who can't eat fish? Casper, the friendly ghost. He can't. It would just fall through him. He just walks through walls because he's not bodily. He's just spirit. What Jesus is saying is that he's been resurrected bodily. John 20, 27. Then he said to Thomas, okay, old doubting Thomas, reach here. Sorry, I think I said that earlier with the disciples in Luke 24. I'm in it here for John 20. Sometimes my thoughts get jumbled. I do have little kids that keep me awake. <clears throat> John 20, 27. Then he said to Thomas, doubting Thomas, who says, I'll only believe him if I can stick my hand in his pierced side and my fingers in his uh, pierced hands. He says, reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believe. Jesus is saying, I am bodily resurrected, and you said you would only believe it if you can put your fingers in my hand holes, then do it. Then do it. Don't doubt. Believe. This is as real as it gets, okay? That's what's being said here in this text, okay? Now, I want to give you another pass a few passages on our resurrection from the New Testament, and then we'll go over some interesting clarifications. Romans 8, 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Notice that that's one of the things we long for. That's one of the things we hope for, is that one day we will be resurrected, okay? We will be resurrected, that our bodies will be redeemed, and they will no longer be sin-scarred like they are now, and that's something that we uh, groan for inwardly. 1 Corinthians 15, through 23, for as in Adam all die so also in Christ shall all be made alive, okay? Notice that resurrection is for everyone, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, the first, you know, blossom on that apple tree of resurrection, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, okay? And then I'll give you one long passage here. 1 Corinthians 15 is a great passage to read if you have questions about the resurrection. They're asking about the resurrected body, and here's what Paul says. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain, but God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. Those are heavenly bodies. For star differs from star in glory. So it it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor 
I'm sorry, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there will also be a spiritual body. Spiritual body there doesn't mean that you're just a spirit. When Paul here is contrasting natural versus spiritual, he's talking about your natural body is the one that's subject to decay. Your natural body is the one that's scarred by sin and death. And the spiritual body is the one where that's taken away. Okay, it's not saying your physical body goes in the grave and you just become a spirit. That's not what it means by spiritual there. Paul doesn't use spiritual the same way Plato does. When Paul talks about flesh and spirit, he typically means something that's corrupted by sin versus something that's redeemed. He's not typically meaning something that's just bodily and something that's just spiritual. There are a few times he uses it that way, but that's not how he's using it here. Okay? Clarifications about general resurrection. We've got a few here. Just to give you a fun fact, just to keep you awake, because we've gone over a lot of Scripture. There was an early church leader, and his name is Origen, okay, Origen, who is an early church leader, and he thought that when we were resurrected, we would all be giant circles. Let me tell you why. Because a circle was thought to be the perfect shape, and the Bible says that our resurrected bodies will be perfect, therefore we would just be rolling around as perfect circles, okay? He's not right. I'm just throwing that out there. That's just to keep you awake. Just a little fun church history for you. Okay. Clarifications about general resurrection. Next. Here's number one. Our resurrection bodies will still be completely human. You do not turn into an angel. You do not become some sort of demigod or something like that. You will always only be a human, okay? Your bodies will be like Adam and Eve's, only where you cannot sin and cannot partake in death. Adam and Eve are kind of in this trial period where they could still sin, where they could still rebel. You won't be able to rebel. You won't be able to sin, but your resurrected bodies will be perfect like Adam and Eve's, but it won't be that you turn into some new type of creature. You are human, and you will only ever be human, so keep that in mind. You don't become an angel and these kind of things. I don't think you have to play a harp if you don't want to, okay, if you don't want to. You, like, hate the harp, right? You, uh, you had some tragic event happen in your life when you played the harp, and now all of a sudden you're forced to play the harp forever, you know? Number two. Will we, ha- uh, we will have no more effects of aging, scars, deformity, etc. okay? Now, Jesus, when he's raised, he still has those holes in his hand, but I think that's meant to be a reminder of his sacrifice to us. That's not saying that you will still have your scars. You will not have your scars. You will not have the effects of aging. You will not have whatever blemish it is that you have that you don't like. Those things will go away. So I'll tell you a little funny story. So there was a guy at the first church where I pastored. It was out in a little, little uh, country church out in a place called Direct, Texas. That's how they said it. Not direct. Not direct like the rest of America would say it. It's the country. So you emphasize the first syllable. It's direct. Okay. Detroit. Watch out for a brown recluse spider, they said. Okay. You emphasize the first syllable of the word, Direct. And there was a man there who was a godly man, a great guy, a really nice guy, and he had actually lost his hand in a farming accident, okay? He had lost his hand in a farming accident, and one of the things that he was so excited about was that at the resurrection, he would get his hand back, okay? He would get his hand back. Now, he would use, he had a hook, okay? And he would use that to play tricks on people, okay? So one time at dinner out at a restaurant, he just kind of hid his hand down in his lap and he ordered a steak, and the waitress came and brought him a steak, and, and he asked this girl who was the waitress, hey, would, would you mind cutting my steak for me? And she just thought he was joking. She's like, ha no, I'm not going to cut your steak. He's like, no, seriously, would, would you mind cutting my steak for me? And she's like, no, I'm not going to cut your steak for you. And then he throws his hook up on the table, and she's like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I will <laughs> immediately cut this steak for you. But he was excited <laughs> that one day, one day, he can cut his own food. One day he will have his hand back, okay? That's the idea with that. Next. How old will you be? The Bible doesn't answer that question, okay? Probably whatever age Adam was. That doesn't answer the question either, okay? 
Whatever age Adam and Eve were, the perfect age, is probably the age you'll become. What is that? I don't know. 21 looking? 18 looking? I don't know. Okay? 30 looking? I don't know. I don't know. Whatever the perfect age is, that is the age you will be, but uh, we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us what that age will be. Okay? Number four, this is a helpful clarifier. You will still be you. Okay? You will still be you. Your present body will be resurrected. It's not as though your body stays in the ground and you're given a second body. Your present body, but not with its present effects of sin. Okay? So it is still you. It is still your body minus the effects of sin, minus the ability to fall. It is your body raised and perfected. It's redeemed. It's not wholly new. Okay? So when the Bible talks about a new heavens and new earth, it's not a completely new heavens and new earth. It is a redeemed new heavens and new earth, purged as through fire, as Peter will say. In the same way, your body is new in the sense that the bad stuff is taken away, but it's still you. You are always going to be you. You are, it's going to be your body that you have, only redeemed and perfected, not brand new, okay? Not new in, uh, like, quantity, where here's a second body, okay? How do I know that? When Jesus is resurrected, it's his body minus the effects of death, okay? You will still be your same race. Jesus is not resurrected as a Gentile. He's resurrected as a Jew. You will still be your same gender, okay? But uh, you will still be you. Yes, the bad stuff will be gone, okay? It'll be your present body, but not your body in its present state right now under the effects of the fall and sin and death and these kind of things. Everybody with me? Okay. Number five, you will not be susceptible to sadness, decay, sickness, pain, or death. Is that not good news? That there will be no more weeping, no more crying, no more mourning, that uh, you cannot sin. Adam and Eve could have sinned or not sinned. After Adam's fall, we can't not sin. Today, as a Christian, you can sin or not sin, and then eventually you won't be able to sin. Okay, that's how that little pattern goes. But you will not be subject, susceptible to fall into temptation or things like sadness, decay, sickness, pain, or death. Everything that you struggle with that is bad, you will not have to struggle with that for all eternity. Worst case scenario, you struggle with it in this life, and then you never struggle with it again for all eternity. It's a pretty good deal to be a Christian. I mean, it's a pretty good bet. If someone was like, I will give you infinite dollars, and it might cost you $5 now, take the infinite dollars, okay? I'm no, I mean, I'm no Scientologist, but I know that that's, when it comes to money, uh, you want the infinite dollars, okay? Notice that you will be not susceptible to these bad things, okay? Number six, now I need to give a clarifier here. Remember that Jesus is the God-man, so he may be able to do things in his body that you will not be able to do. Here's what I mean by that. I really like Wayne Grudem. We use his book uh, a lot for this class in here. I agree with him on probably 95% of things. He spends a lot of time talking about what he thinks our resurrection body will be like in light of Christ, which I think you can do to an extent. But you have to be careful there. So Jesus just appears in the room near them. Yes, but that's also because he can do miracles. It's also because he's God. That doesn't mean that we'll just be able to walk through walls. Or someone will say, well, you know, after the resurrection, they didn't recognize who Jesus is. Yeah, not because he looked different, but because they weren't expecting a resurrection. They weren't expecting a resurrection, okay? And so you have to be careful by taking these things that you see that happen after Christ is resurrected and say, that might be the exact same for me because, again, Christ uh, is able to do these miracles and things that you are not able to do. So we should see that our resurrection will be like Christ and that it will be bodily and that uh, we will no longer be susceptible to death and decay and these kind of things, but uh, Jesus will, because he's also God, always be able to do things that you cannot do. Next, number seven. Resurrection is different than resuscitation. Resurrection is different than resuscitation. So a few months ago, I was driving down the road, 
And you know those little warning signs where it'll say like, you know, caution, construction ahead or whatever, and they're just blinking. They're like these little carts that they put on the side of the road that let you know something's coming. I guess some kid had hacked that sign and it said, caution, zombies ahead. As I'm driving, caution, and I'm like, I've been waiting for this moment my whole life. I'm ready. You know, I'm getting ready for the apocalypse with the zombies ahead until I realize, oh, I'm an idiot. Someone probably hacked that sign. I don't think this is the way the government would tell us if there were zombies, okay? Resurrection is not like being a zombie. Resurrection is not resuscitation, okay? People like Lazarus are not really resurrected. They're resuscitated. Why? Because they come back to life, but they will eventually die again. You hear of this in medicine, that people are declared medically dead, and then something happens, and they are resuscitated, but eventually they die. That's not the same thing in resurrection. In resurrection, it's where you're raised to life never to die again, okay? That's different. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, capital R, but yes, you do have people in the Bible that are resuscitated before that, but they die again, okay? It would really stink if you're related to Lazarus because now you've had to pay for two funerals or whatever, but uh, it is just a, re- a resuscitation in the first one, okay? Number eight, your body is really valuable, so take care of it and avoid the stain of sin, okay? Resurrection is important because it lets you know that your bodily life has value. Think about the difference between when I stay in my house versus when I stay in a hotel. Do you think I care about how clean I leave a hotel? No, I just throw the towels on the floor. I'm done eating this burrito. Just throw it against the wall, whatever it is. I'm not going to clean it up. I don't care. I'm just there temporarily, and then I'm out. Now, I do not do that at my house, okay? One, because I'm married. Two, because I have to keep living in my house. Your body is like a house, not a hotel, okay? Take care of your body. And by that, I mean spiritually. Yes, physically too, but spiritually, okay? Don't be involved in sin. Don't don't neglect the fact that your your body and your spirit are linked. You can't just say, well, I just sinned with my body, but not with my heart. They always go together. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians when they're going to temple prostitutes that they're trying to unite Christ's temple with a prostitute. Your bodily life matters, okay? Avoid the stain of sin. Avoid the stain of sin. And then lastly, you will always be the gender you are, so enjoy the gender that you were created to be. Now, I say this in light of a culture, in light of the LGBTQ movement and these kind of things, which would say that you can change your gender. Let me be very clear. You can never change your gender. You can mutilate the body, but that doesn't change your gender. And guess what? For all eternity, you will be the gender you, God, that God created you to be. So whatever mutilations you do to your body, they will go away, and you will then be the gender you've always been. There is no getting away from your gender. So instead of trying to chop off parts or add parts or mutilate your body, deal with the actual heart issue, which is that you do or don't like the fact that God has created you to be a certain way. You need to understand that if you are a woman, you glorify God the most when you're being a woman. Okay? God having two genders for humanity wasn't like an effect of the fall. It wasn't like there was just Adam and then he ate the fruit and then Eve popped out and God was like, oh, we gotta get rid of these distinctions. No, The way you glorify God as a woman is by being womanly, is by being like a woman. The way you glorify God as a man is by being manly, by being like a man, okay? And so know that that will be the case for all eternity. Notice that you'll be the same race that you are for all eternity, okay? You'll be the same race that you are for eternity, that around God's throne there will be people of every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. Every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. If there's something that you don't like that God has created you to be, wrestle with that. Talk to God about it. Ask why. Get counseling, okay? 
Learn to love the way that God has created you to be. Now, there are certain things you might not like because of an effect of the fall. Well, Zach, I've got some sort of sickness or illness. That will go away, okay? But if it's something that's not bad and you just don't like it, have that heart wrestle with, uh, with God and wrestle through why it is that you don't like what God has created you to be. Okay, there's general resurrection for you in 45-ish minutes. Jeffrey, you want to come up and do a little, uh, little Q&A? I left a little extra time because I figured that people usually have uh, resurrection questions some of which the Bible does not answer, but we will, uh, we will do our best as he comes up with, uh, with a few questions for us that you guys have texted in. And then next week, remember, if we don't get to your question, email us. We're happy to answer it that way. Or send it in for next week. Maybe we'll be able to address it uh, next week. We're not trying to ignore your questions. We just only have so much time to do questions. Sorry, I, I called you up like while you were sitting back there with the door closed. Twitter. Yeah. Posting all these, these comments on Twitter. Candy Crush. Yeah. Okay. This is... Why is this so high? I'm, uh, I'm not Tim. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, all right, question number one. It's like you're a giant. You're not yeah. that big. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if resurrection was so prominent in the Old Testament, how did the Jewish religious leaders in Jesus' day deny the resurrection. So I'll give a few thoughts and then turn it over to you. So uh, one of the things that he talked about was that uh, the uh, Pharisees in particular, they were offended by the news of the resurrection and really Israel in general was, uh, was disturbed by the resurrection because of the fact that it was this uh, event that wasn't an end times event like they had expected. They expected it to happen at the end and it was happening in the middle of time. And uh, so that was offensive. But there were people in Jesus' day that uh, did not believe in the resurrection at all. And so one of the things you need to understand is uh, Israel in the first century wasn't monolithic. There wasn't, there wasn't just one sort of opinion or one sort of view on the resurrection. So it would be kind of like uh, someone asking today, what do Americans believe? You go overseas and someone asks, what do Americans believe? Right? Does anyone here honestly believe that you could answer that question? No, because every uh, American is going to believe something different about just about anything. Go open Twitter or Facebook or something like that, and you'll see we have very different opinions. Likewise, with first century uh, Israel. And so there was a particular sect uh, of, uh, of Jewish leaders called the Sadducees, and they did not believe in the resurrection. And, uh, and so, in fact, they didn't believe in angels or demons or the resurrection and they only held to the Pentateuch being authoritative. And so they didn't hold to the rest of the Bible. They only held to the first five books of the Bible, which is why whenever they approach Jesus uh, and, uh, and ask him about the resurrection, what does Jesus do in, in quoting? He quotes Genesis. He doesn't quote Daniel. He doesn't quote Ezekiel. He could. Those things are authoritative. But instead, he uses the very thing that they find to be authoritative. And so I think that's the reason that uh, even though the resurrection was prominent in the Old Testament, that there were people who dismissed it completely out of hand, and that were the Sadducees. Anything to add to that? No, that was, that was, I mean, when you look at these passages from the Old Testament that I quoted, none of them come from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy. They don't come from the Pentateuch, the law. They come from the prophets and the writings. And if you're a group that has already rejected those, well, then you don't have a reason to believe in resurrection. So your view of canon, your view of what books belong in the Bible will affect what you believe on these different issues and doctrines. But that's one of the reasons. But yeah. Okay, if, uh, if there will be animals in the new earth, how do we know that our pets will not be resurrected? Do you want me to go? You want to? Yeah, I'll go. Let me say something about animals. There will be no cats. No cats in heaven. Uh, 
Okay, so here's the thing. The, the Bible will talk about… Uh, so first of all, in the Garden of Eden, you have animals. Okay? And the idea really of uh, Genesis is getting us back to the Garden of Eden and better. The Bible begins in a garden and ends with a city because the command of mankind was to bring God's Eden all over the world, if you will. And so the Bible will talk about the wolf lying down with the lamb and the, uh, you know, the, the, the child playing over the adder's den and these kind of things. Now, that is metaphorical language that there will be total, total universal peace. Uh, many people do think that in the new heavens and new earth there will still be animals, but that is different than current animals being resurrected. Okay? You will be resurrected, new heavens, new earth. Fluffy, probably not going to be resurrected. Where does his soul go in the meantime? Does he have a soul? Blah, blah, blah. So I think the idea would be that not all dogs go to heaven, because if all dogs go to heaven, then dogs go to hell. If your dog's always pooping on the carpet or whatever, that's the problem. If you think that it's your same animal that's resurrected to heaven, a bad animal who's not redeemed by the blood of Christ, which none of them are, would then have to go to hell. So I don't think that your animal is resurrected. Could there be animals in the new heavens and new earth? Yes, but it's not because your animal has died, its soul has gone to Sheol, it, uh, it then awaits judgment, none of that kind of stuff. Animals are not people, okay? Only people have uh, souls that matter. There, I've said it that way. <laughs> only, animals have so or only people have souls that matter. And so, yes, there could be animals in the new heavens and new earth. I don't think it will be current animals, uh, meaning your, your personal pet that's resurrected like Pet cemetery or something. Jeff. By the way, if you lost an animal, so my, my sister had to put her dog down yesterday, I'm just joking to keep you awake, okay? I'm not mean to animals. I don't kick animals when people aren't looking, and so I'm just saying this as a joke. I'm not trying to actually offend you. I'm just trying to, just trying to keep you awake. So. Yeah, I, th I think the big thing there is to recognize there is something that is, that is distinct about mankind bearing the Imago Dei, the image of God, uh, that animals don't, even angels don't. And so there are uh, fallen angels. We know them as demons, and God doesn't redeem them. Christ didn't come to die for them. And so there's, there's something that's very distinct about humans. That doesn't mean God doesn't love angels. That doesn't mean that God doesn't love your dog or I, I don't think he loves your cat. We're always going to make fun of cats. The fops are always going to make a comment because they have a cat. But uh, anyway, um, here, here's the deal. If you're sad about that now, I understand that, right? I lost a dog whenever I was a kid and uh, it devastated me. You won't be sad in the resurrection. Whenever you get to the, the, the heavens or you get to the new earth, you will not be sad. There will be no mourning. There will be no tears. None of those kind of things. So cry for now, but you won't uh, in eternity. All right. There was a recent video of an alleged pastor raising someone from the dead overseas. How should we understand that? So let me give a couple of qualifications. Then you might have something. So first off, that is not resurrection. We talked about that. There's a difference between resuscitation and resurrection. All right. The first person that's resurrected is Jesus, even though many people had been raised from the dead. So you see that in Elijah's ministry, you see that uh, with Jesus raising uh, Lazarus from the dead, you see that in Paul's ministry where uh, he raises someone, uh, I think it's Eutyches or something like that, uh, and, uh, and so you see all of these examples. Those are resuscitations, not resurrection. So best case scenario, it's not uh, a resurrection. Uh, here's what I would say, though, is I think there should be a profound amount of skepticism with a lot of these things. We don't know all the facts. We're not there. Uh, I would assume that none of us were actually there uh, for the case, so we don't know all of the facts, and so there is a degree to which we don't have to have an informed opinion on, uh, on these uh, sorts of things. Maybe they weren't really dead. Maybe there was some sort of medical intervention. In fact, I saw the video that this person is, uh, is referencing, and uh, I made a joke because it looked like the guy was kind of twitching before he was raised from the dead. And so we don't know uh, the facts in these uh, sorts of situations, but the biblical idea is it seems to go against the, uh, the kind of the thrust, uh, the theme of Scripture, 
uh, you read in, uh, in the book of Luke the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And, uh, and there the whole point is even if someone returns from the dead, it's not going to encourage or it's not going to convince uh, the lost. And so oftentimes these things will be done as some sort of testimony. We talked about this last week with the 90 minutes in heaven or 91 minutes in heaven or 92 minutes in heaven or whatever it is uh, that uh, the, the next bestseller is going to be that they typically use this as some sort of, this is proof. This is proof that Jesus rose from the dead. You know what's proof that Jesus rose from the dead? The fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And scripture, we don't need other proof. And, uh, and so what, what oftentimes is uh, these sort of accounts are used as something that's intended to bolster our faith. And we shouldn't need something other than the very resurrection of Jesus and scripture to bolster your faith. More thoughts on that? Yeah, I think you will see from time to time what people are claiming to be resuscitations. I'm skeptical with how spiritual that is because that happens in the medical community all the time. So if this guy was not really fully dead, if you want to say it that way, and then he's resuscitated, that happens all the time with atheistic doctors who help bring somebody back after they've quote-unquote died. So that's not what's impressive. Resurrection, where you are raised never to die again, the Bible's clear that that will happen when Christ comes back. So in that sense, there should be no, you shouldn't be really expecting a resurrection before then. You can have resuscitations that sometimes involve religion. Other times they don't. Other times they involve false religion and these kind of things. And so I would, be, uh, I would agree with being very skeptical towards anything like that. That is not to doubt God's power to resuscitate somebody, but that is to make sure that we don't deny that Scripture teaches that people are raised when Christ comes back. We don't want to ignore that fact. So. Maybe they were mostly dead, like uh, Wesley and Princess Bride. Okay, uh, Daniel 12.2 says that many who sleep shall awake. Does that word many, uh, why doesn't he use the word all? Does that imply that some will not uh, awake? You want to give thoughts or you want me to? Yeah, you go ahead first. Okay, so first off, I think that is a, a figure of speech. It's oftentimes uh, used in Scripture where a part of something is used as a whole. Whenever it says many, it's not uh, meaning many as opposed to all. It's used many as a sense of the, uh, the grandness of the scope. That's the, the, the way that uh, that word is used. You'll see the similar sort of idea in Romans 5.19. I wrote this down. Uh, For as by one man's uh, disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. We know in the context that by one man's disobedience, all were made sinners. And so the word many there is not used in, uh, in contradiction or to... Uh, uh, to distinguish it from, uh, from all, it's just used as a large sort of, uh, of number. But regardless of how you take the, the word many there, you have to allow the New Testament to clarify. And in John 5 and Matthew 24, 25, I forget, um, it is uh, just overwhelmingly clear that there is a resurrection of all, the just and the unjust. So you allow the New Testament, there's a principle in hermeneutics that is, allow the clearer passages of Scripture to help you to interpret the less clear passages of Scripture. More on that? No, I think that's it. Uh, you said uh, that uh, you will be uh, female. That's not actually what you said, that, that some will be female and some will be male. Uh, but, uh, but in uh, Galatians and Colossians and these kind of things, it says there is no male or female. Can you help us with that? Yeah, Galatians 3.28 says that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. What it's talking about is your identity in Christ 
is what unifies Christians, and all the other things that d- diversify you from other Christians go away, okay? So it's not saying that you're not still really a man or really a woman. Paul will end up talking about in the New Testament that only men can be elders and women can't and these kind of things. It'll talk about wives submitting to husbands so you don't lose your gender roles or something like that. The context is important. It's talking about in Christ. Who is closer to Jesus when they become a Christian, a Jew or a Gentile? They're equally close. Who's closer to Jesus, a man or a woman? They're equally close. Who's closer to Jesus, someone who's slave or someone who's free? They're equally close. And so that passage is not saying that there are no more gender distinctions. Uh, Rather, that passage is saying that when it comes to your identity before Christ, God does not love one group more than the other. Paul's writing to Galatians who are tempted to withdraw from Gentiles and just focus on their Jewishness. And he's trying to say, if you do that, you've missed the point. Christ breaks down these things that diversify and make us different, and our focus is on our unity in Christ, okay? You are not a male Christian, a white Christian, a rich Christian, a poor Christian, whatever. You're just a Christian. And so we have to realize that the context there is talking about your relationship to Christ and what it means to be a part of his church, not saying that there are no more gender roles today, which the New Testament will strictly affirm, and then also that you will be uh, raised male or female at the resurrection. But those are some initial. That's great. Uh, last one, there were a number of questions on, uh, and I think you clarified some of these, but I just want to get some further clarifications for our people, kind of a pastoral encouragement. Uh, a lot of questions on, will we have scars? Uh, because Jesus has scars. Will we be able to do cool tricks like Jesus? He could materialize in a room. He could uh, ascend into heaven, those kinds of things. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, can you, do you have other thoughts in regards to kind of the continuity and discontinuity between Christ and what we see of him in the Gospels and then what we will uh, experience ourselves? Yeah, I think when looking at what your resurrection will be like, I think you have to look in two places. I think you have to look at Christ's resurrection, but I also think you have to go back to the Garden of Eden and think about what was humanity like before the fall and before sin, okay? Now, there's a sense in which Adam and Eve's story is a little bit different than ours because they are susceptible to those things. They can fall. They can sin. They can die. We will not even have those options. So in that sense, our eternal state will be better than that of Adam and Eve. But notice, they're still humans, right? They eat. They walk around. They don't fly. They don't do David Blaine magic tricks or whatever it is. They're just humans, right? And so I think what I'm trying to say is you will be resurrected and you will still be human minus any bad stuff. So what does it mean to be a human who doesn't die and minus every bad thing? That's what it means to be resurrected. What I'm trying to fight against is this idea that now I become resurrected and I somehow become something that's not human. I become some sort of angel and I can fly and I can do it. The Bible does not teach those kind of things. You don't need to fly. There's a new earth, etc. And so, uh, so my view is when we talk about having a new body, what we mean is it's a redeemed body. It's not brand new. You're still you. It's new in the sense that all the bad stuff, your sin-scarred, corrupted, able to fall, able to give into temptation, able to do all these bad things, body is what's gone, but it's still you. So that would be some qualifiers, but if you want to add some, add some more, please. Yeah, no, I, I, th- I think the big, the big idea is uh, you don't need to know. Like, uh, the Word of God is sufficient. He's given you everything that you need to know. And so kind of the illustration I would give is imagine that I told you um, – uh, that I had this stack of money that I wanted to give you, right? And, and you asked for clarification. I said, it's a stack. Like, it will fill up an entire room. And so you ask, well, what are the dimensions in the room? And then you ask, well, are they $100 bills or are they $1 bills? Are they all of these sorts of things that are absolutely irrelevant? You don't need to know that information in order for you to follow after me and to go get this uh, great treasure. And so uh, you don't need to know what your body is going to be like other than the fact that it's going to be 
perfect. It's going to be perfected. It's going to be resurrected. It's going to be, you're going to appreciate it. You're going to love it. You're going to love Jesus, all of these sorts of things. So there's often, there is this tendency in the human heart for us to speculate, to ask all of these questions. I don't, you might be able to jump really far. I don't know. The Bible doesn't explicitly say that you can't. It seems to be weird to, to, uh, to say that you can on the basis of it being somewhat of a return to Eden. But I don't know. Maybe you can do some cool tricks, but the Bible doesn't say, and you don't need to know. And so I think that's where I want to press us just to press into the sufficiency of God's Word and not to give ourselves over to speculation. The Bible is actually going to warn in a number of places against these sort of endless speculations and these sorts of things because they're no profit to us. What they, do, they actually do is they actually take us away from trusting God and, uh, and His Word. So uh, if you have questions about that and you need to work through them because for whatever reason it's just a hang-up for you, then by all means, come and chat with us. We'd love to talk about that. Uh, but if it's just something where you're just curious or interested, I can just tell you the Bible doesn't say, and so we don't really have a great answer. That's it. Thanks for coming. Jeffrey, you going to pray us out? Yeah. Okay. Father, we thank you for uh, your grace and love and mercy. We thank you for the resurrection of your son. That is uh, our hope, Lord. If he is still in the grave, then we are still in our sins, and, uh, and we have no hope whatsoever. And so we're grateful for his resurrection and, uh, and that it was the first fruits of our own. And so we, uh, we yearn and long for that day when our bodies will groan no longer and we will uh, know the perfection of joy in the consummation. And so I pray where our hearts are not quick, even as we talked about last week, that there are still things that we want to accomplish in this life and where it might be difficult for us to say, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, that you would uh, help us in our weakness in those areas, that we might be able to uh, affirm that with our brother Paul. And, uh, and so we love you. We pray that you'd prepare our hearts as we go forth from here and turn our attention uh, to Romans 14. And so help us, Lord, confess that we're weak and we are in need of your grace and you are faithful to provide it. And so we pray in Christ's name. Amen.